First Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten. If you have a Bible, turn on over there, dial that up. And if you need a handout, I know that uh, we, they weren't getting handout at the at the east entrance. Dan has bulletins with a with the notes inside of them. If you did not get a bulletin and you need one, raise a hand. We've got someone right down here. Dan will bring them. Looks like people off on this side. You get to take a walk, Dan. Keep your hand up and we'll get started here uh, together. First Peter chapter 2 and we're in verses 8 and 9. And we'll begin by reading those two verses out of the passage that Steve Kester read to us just a short time ago. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's bow in prayer as we dig into this passage together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've communicated your word down and, and placed it in, this, in the scriptures, in a, collected together, that we can go to this place and see you and your will and your heart and your mind revealed to us. And Lord, I pray that as we approach your word, we, we would do it soberly, understanding what it is, but we would do it joyously, understanding that it communicates to us, then how should we then live in light of who you are and who we are in Christ? And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds and that we would not be the same as we walk out from this place today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, throughout the world, people are struggling for identity. They're struggling with their identity. And they seek affirmation for their identity, their value, and their purpose. You know, it's everything. It can be your ethnicity. It can be your political party. It can be your passions and desires. It can be your gender, your mask, your no mask, your vax, your non-vax, your social media persona, your teen, whether you're a teen advice giver. Those are always unique. A TikTok dancer, including the dancing Amish man. And yes, that's a real thing. Don't go looking it up right now. He'll be there when you get home, okay? He's got plenty out there. That's, it's a real thing. It's crazy. But it can be about where you live. It can be about who your people are, right? It can be about what your job is, where you go to school. Your identity gets wrapped up in those things. And your identity ultimately drives your daily priorities, your conversation, what you talk about, right? And your conduct, how you live. Let me say that again. Your identity drives your daily priorities, your conversation, and your conduct. For many, in the very essence of who they are, they stumble over the gospel. We talked about that last week. The very nature of how they think and who they are does not allow them to accept the truth of the gospel. It is the rock of stumbling. They trip over it, right? It doesn't affirm them in who they are. It doesn't affirm them in their sin. And therefore, they remain culpable for their sin. They're going to face judgment because of their sin. And every single one of us stood in that place. We were at the very essence of who we, were, we are. We were sinners. We only identified in our sin. And we stumbled at the word. But by God's grace, if you're a believer here this morning, in his grace, he did what this passage is going to talk about today. In his grace, he called you in his mercy and he delivered you from darkness to light, from death to life. And that 
gives you, in Christ, a new identity. And that's where we begin our passage today. Peter says, but you who believe. But you who believe. There are two different ways. There are those who disobey the truth and those who believe the truth. Those who disobey the truth face judgment. Those who believe the truth and by faith trust Jesus Christ as their Savior are gloriously saved. There's only one way to be saved and that's gloriously, right? There's no partial, there's no kind of, there is unsaved and there is gloriously saved. Before Christ, each of us were clearly sinners. We maybe identified yourself as a good person, maybe better than others. Or maybe you recognize, oh, I'm not a great person, but hey, it's just my lot in life. It's who I am. Or as my friend said at a party one time, hey, I'm on the highway to hell and loving it. He identified with what he was and he just accepted it. And so in that identity comes how you live your life. One way in which our world deals with our identity issue is to embrace our fallen sinfulness and seek or even demand from others that you affirm me in my identity. You say that I'm okay. You say that it's all right for me to be the way I am. But Christ is better than that. He, he gives us something far better. And he says, no, every single one of you are broken and fallen in sin. And I've called you to be something more. I've called you out of that into my glorious light. Sadly, this affirmation of sinful, broken, and distorted human identity is just foolishness. In fact, a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, um, my Xterra died. Or it was dying. It was all but dead. And uh, and it spent the night parked in a parking lot. And I got it towed over here down to Morse Lake Automotive. And, and he pulled it in. When he didn't, it got pulled in. And he looked at it. And he uh, he said, well, it depends on what you think. It, it's you know, it's going to cost more than it's worth. Unless you identify the car as a, as a running car and a good car, then it looks like you got a broken car. No, he didn't say that. It was a broken car. And uh, some junkyard gave me a thousand bucks for it and it went off down the road. Okay, they identified it for what it was. And had I tried to go on with it, it would not have ended well. Right. Even if I could have gotten out of the parking lot and down the road before long, it's going to cause me issues. And our sin is going to cause us issues if we don't set aside our sin and, and come to Christ in his mercy. Then we face the consequences of driving a broken vehicle. That's not enjoyable to hear. That's, that's not, hey, buddy, let's just go live your best life now. That's not what this is. But let me tell you, that's why there's the gospel. That's why there's good news. That's why we have hope. We don't like that label sinner. And therefore, we can trip over the solution. The cornerstone. The stone of offense, as he talks about in verse 8. And many refuse to believe. But in verse 9, he contrasts, Peter contrasts the disobedient who get tripped up over Jesus Christ and those who believe. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In a world that stumbles over, gets tripped up over the existence of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and obedience to the Word. Who are these people of God and why in the world do they matter anyway? Right? But I want to look, look into these next few passages and see what is the big deal about the ident- our identity in Christ as the people of God. You see, as the people of God, we are recipients of a unique and gracious calling. What a contrast. What a contrast we see between those who stumble and those who are called and receive mercy. This is all about God's gracious and merciful calling to an undeserving people. It is all about Him. As I got partway through the week this week and I was thinking about the idea of us talking about the, uh, our identity in Christ. You hear that? Our identity in Christ. What does the conversation become? 
Me, me, me. And it's true. It is. Peter's talking about us. That's a good thing. But he talks about us in the context of what God has done. So who is the attention really on? It's on God. And man, when that gripped me this week, it transformed my perspective of this chapter. It was no longer just a simple, oh yeah, I'm a priest, I'm this, uh, okay, whatever, right? No, it began to go, oh, this is what, this is something God's doing? Then that means it's a divine work. And if it's a divine work, it's a big deal. This is not just, you know, me messing around in the garage or making something in the kitchen or something. This is a divine work that's being done. And as such, I ought to sit up and take notice because it should matter. Matter of fact, Peter's words in, in our, our passage here in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, draw us back in our memories or back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, it says, For you are a people holy to your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You picking up these words that are that are very, very similar to what we're reading? It goes on. Out of all the peoples of the earth, who are, all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord sent his love on you, set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you hear that? You, you, but it was God all along. It was God that did it. You're a possession. You're a people, right? And you are beloved by God. Now, you may be saying, okay, we got Peter in the New Testament saying this to the people he's addressing, which includes us, New Testament church people. But that other thing was said to Israel, okay? So, when Peter says it in the New Testament, is he saying that the church replaces Israel? Ah, this will get a few of you like, what is he even talking about? And a few others in here, your ears are perked up like, oh... What's he going to say? Because you may be on one side of that and others on the other side of it. I'm just going to dig in and and very quickly sort of move through a quick note of what I understand to be the case regarding Peter's statement here and elsewhere in the New Testament regarding of Israel and the church. Okay, is he a replacement guy? All right. And I can see some of the smiles out there. All right. But when Peter takes that Old Testament language. Addressed to the, specifically to the nation of Israel, okay, and applies it to the New Testament church like he did right here. And we're going to see it even more when we go to Isaiah and Exodus 19. We're going to see that even more. Is he implying that Israel has been completely rejected and replaced by the church? Many believers today do believe that. Many believe that God's plan for the Jewish people has come to an end. And that it's sort of done. Like, okay, I set aside Israel, now it's just the church. Okay? It's my understanding. As I understand and look at the New Testament, I believe the New Testament reveals that God's plan is not to reinterpret or abolish Old Testament promises to ethnic Israel, but to fulfill them through Jesus Christ. Although much of ethnic Israel has been in a state of unbelief since the time of Christ, God will one day, one day bring about a remnant, right? And he promises that. He'll bring back a remnant to faith in Christ and restore them in the land promised to their forefathers, which Jesus himself promised the apostles. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And without going into it, we can get into, that's where some people say, well, that's a spiritual Israel. Um, and others would say, no, I believe that's, that's Israel. When Peter refers to Israel as those builders who rejected the cornerstone, I think we need to understand this in light of Paul's teaching. And here's what Paul said in Romans 11, 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. 
when Peter applies passages from the Old Testament to the New Testament church, I don't think we need to assume that the chosen people of old have been utterly divorced and replaced by the new. Rather, the Old Testament serves as an example with application to us, though the primary meaning of the passage is still maintained. So you've got what was said to them holding true. Applied for us. And you say, okay, do you have scripture to back that up? Yes, in fact, I do. All right. And that's first, that's in first Corinthians 10, 11. Paul wrote with reference to Old Testament scripture. Now, these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon the, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So with that understanding in mind, and again, love to talk with you more if you're interested. I think, you know, you probably have studied it out and you're come to your conclusion and I've looked into it and, and I've come to my conclusion and, and we can, we can be there together. And I know for a fact there are people in this church who differ on that. Okay? But you know what? Here's the cool thing. We still honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We still reverence His Word. We still love one another. And we are united in spirit and in truth. And we will work through these things together and be the better for it. Right? Amen? With that understanding in our minds, the Old Testament background of 1 Peter 2.9 looks a little more like this. In Isaiah 43.20 and 21, he says, My chosen people... By the way, when that word chosen is used in the Old Testament, it is always referring to the chosen or elect of Yahweh. That's who he's talking about. The people whom I formed for myself that they may declare my praise. Sounds very familiar to our first Peter passage, right? The people I have chosen, the people whom I have formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Then we go to Exodus 19, 5 and 6. It says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation you think peter knew the old testament peter knew it and the spirit inspired it and said peter put on paper what you know in your head and apply it to these dear brothers and sisters so peter says who we are is first of all a chosen race or offspring. We are of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. We are of one spiritual blood. Everyone who is in Christ, their identity begins with their who they are offspring of. If you are in Christ, you have the spiritual DNA, if you will, not literally, but you have the spiritual DNA. You have the spirit of God living within you. You're born of the of the spirit. You're you have the second birth as Jesus talked about. And you are of Christ. We are one race made of every tribe, of every tongue, and of every nation on earth. All As all of mankind was of one bloodline, Adam, right? Began with Adam. So too, everyone who is in Christ comes from Christ. We all have a common bloodline. We may not look all very much alike, but we are of one blood. And that is a, an amazing thing. In Christ, we are fellow heirs with Christ. And so everything he has, we share. That's a big thing. Everything that Christ has, it's one thing if I say, okay, hey, did you know that you're related to David Fowler? Everything David has is yours. Whoa. David's like, ain't enough for me here. Come on, man. But in Christ, we have everything, all the spiritual riches in in heavenly places. That's huge. As we think of how then shall we live, my identity. I'm no longer just Stephen Schultz, the son of Kirk Schultz, the son of, he goes back if you, back and back. Big deal. That's great. But I am Stephen Schultz. I am the offspring of God. I am of the bloodline of Jesus. I am a fellow heir with my brother, Jesus Christ. That is a Beautiful thing. You are so much more. Young person, you're so much more than what you feel inside. Of your desires and passions you have inside. You're so much more than that. You're so much more than your education. You're so much more than what you have experienced in life as painful and as awful as that may have been. 
You are so much more. You are a child of God. And as such, you live with royal blood pumping through your veins. And friend, because you are in Christ, as we talked about last week, you have life in Christ. You have an eternity in Christ. You have salvation and hope through Christ. But we're not just a chosen race. We're, and, and let me back up because I didn't really explain that race thing. That can be interpreted bloodline. When we talk about race, we're talking about people who came from one place, from one person. Is that clear? That's where that came from. But then we are also a royal priesthood. We are mediators of God's blessings. The royal part of it speaks of both the honor that he's actually talked about previously in the, the verses right before. The honor we have serving as representatives or priests in the king's presence. But it also points forward to the ruling function of the church in the kingdom of God. And if you want to look that up on your own time, you can see it in Revelation 1.6, Revelation 5.10, and Revelation 20, verse 6. Commentator Juan Sanchez puts it this way, Just as God called Israel as a royal priesthood to be the mediator of God's blessings to the surrounding nations, so too the church is to mediate God's blessings to the world. That's pretty cool when you think about it. Our responsibility as priests within, and, and every believer is part of this priesthood. It is to be a blessing to the nations. And the greatest blessing we're going to get to in just a little bit. But we are to impart, to mediate God's blessings to the world. We speak to God about the world. We speak and say, Lord, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We're talking about the world to God. Hallowed be your name on earth. May this, may the people on this earth learn to reverence you and hallow you and obey you to your glory. But we also speak to the world for God. And we proclaim His excellencies. And we'll get to that in a moment. We proclaim His truth. We pro- proclaim His gospel. We are, it is through his royal priest that he is building his holy nation. God's people are to be a holy nation. They are a holy nation, set apart and distinct from the world to be more like Christ than the world. We are to be different from the world for the sake of the world. And that comes with this idea of being both priest and we, as I think they put up here, a holy nation. We are to live under God's reign. And this has some practical implications for where we live today. We live under God's rule, which supersedes the rule of any nation. For we ought to obey God rather than man. We are citizens of a holy nation. We have in common characteristics through Jesus Christ, independent, get this, independent of any nationalistic ties that we have. We have a special relationship to God and therefore to one another. Those things supersede any nationality. I don't care where you live in the world. We must be careful not to conflate our two identities. The fact that we are one holy nation under God and that we are citizens on earth of any nation, whatever that may be, right? We're not just Christians first. We are Christians. Period. We are Christians who happen to live those here in the United States of America. You may be watching or you may hear this at some time and you may not be living in the United States of America. Your job is to be a Christian in that place. Each Christian is to live out God's priorities while living, and that's under his reign, live out God's priorities while living under the limited authority that God has bestowed upon their earthly rulers. And we saw great examples of that throughout the Old Testament, right? We see it in the New Testament. It's a great study for you to look at the relationship between God's people and those who ruled over them. They often, I mean, you look at just the life of Daniel. In the life of Daniel, Daniel was a a helper to some pretty awful people. He pointed them to God. He gave them wise counsel. 
But he also lifted them up and, and held and, and prayed for them and encouraged. He actually, one place he says, he strengthened him, believe in relation to Darius. And so we are to live under the limited authority. And that could be kings. If you live in a land with a king, a prince, presidents, governors, let that sink in. County council. Brother Mark Hall running for office here in county council. Mayors, students, teachers, coaches, bosses. Whew. Those are limited. They have limited authority, but you live as a Christian foremost under them. And as such, you apply Christian principles to how then you live. You obey the law to the degree I ought to obey God rather than man. Other than that, you honor the king is what Paul said. But we're not just a not just collectively a spiritual nation. In other words, that's a us together, right? That's kind of, hey, yeah, we're a spiritual nation. That's a beautiful thing that we're together in this. But we're something more. We are a people for his own possession. And I love this one. We are beloved and preserved, not just by God, but for God. Okay, when you were a kid, you maybe had something that was really precious to you, right? And you didn't ever want to lose that thing. It was, you kept it, mine was a monkey, all right? I had a little black monkey that had a banana and, and he survived many years and he was so beloved by me that he got haircuts and cut and stuff all, I mean, all kinds of things that he was beloved. It wasn't much to be possessed by me and preserved by me. But folks, you are possessed. That word possessed means preserved. In other words, you're, you're owned for safekeeping. You are owned by the God of the universe. He bought you with the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You are owned by him. You're precious to him. You are beloved by him. God says, these are my people. He knows us and he has a close, authentic, meaningful, transforming relationship with us. And we're called to know him and to call others to know him. We are the people of God. We are God's people. There's, I've said this different times when referring to my, I grew up in, a, in, in Waverly, Kansas, guys. I'm no city boy. Um, I grew up around farm people, a town of 600, a church of about 60. Um, and if I talk about my people, I'm talking about salt of the earth people. Right. Um, we came to church and in just the many farmers, they came in what they wore doing chores that morning. OK. And, and those are my people, I often will say. But listen to me, whoever your people are, whoever you claim as your people. God claims you as his people. You are God's people. Wow. I get, have you looked at me, God? Have, have you seen me? Have you, have you f- seen my thoughts and seen my heart and, and heard my words and witnessed my actions? He says, yes. But you're my people, not because of who you are, but because what I did to make you, purchase you, and make you my people. You are beloved people. Romans 9.25 says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people... I will call my people and her who is not beloved. I will call beloved. You're his people and you're beloved by God. This isn't some modern mishmash of some sort of love therapy. This is the king of kings saying he loves you and he purchased you. But to what purpose has he preserved his people? It's not merely that you might feel good about yourself or not even that you'll just have forgiveness or be saved from sin and sin's curse. But as God, as the people of God, we are called to know and proclaim the power of God. You got to know something before you can talk about it. You got to, in this word, this idea of knowing, we'll see um, pulled here in a moment through, through light, is this idea of, of experientially seeing it 
Okay? But we're called to proclaim the excellencies of God who, who calls you to know Him. Excellencies, that word, is actually a word that, and I, ladies, sorry, um, it means manly. You're like, wait, what? Proclaim the manliness of God? What do you mean? Well, it's used in this context of of a man being a man on the battlefield, of showing valor on the battlefield. And when they came back, they would proclaim his manliness on the battlefield. They would come back into town and they might even go before him and have criers come and say, General so-and-so, he killed his thousands, he killed millions. Oh, that reminds us of a story in the Old Testament when the women would, would, would sing that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Put that on a t-shirt, right? Saul didn't like that. He wanted them to proclaim his valor, his excellencies. That's the heart of it. We need to know of the excellencies of God that we might proclaim his valor, his might, his power. That song we sang talked about his strength of mercy. That's where it comes from. We proclaim how strong his mercy is to move us from darkness to light, from death to life, from sinner to saved. And in that we delight and go, wow, he did that. He did that to me. He did that to me at great price. John in Revelation Chapter 1, 5 and 6 does a little bit of this, I think. Proclaim the excellencies of God. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's proclaiming the excellencies of God. The God who did this deserves to be his name honored, his valor proclaimed. The redeemed of the Lord can joyously affirm the wonder and power of God through Jesus Christ. For by his great power, he has brought every child of God from darkness to life. And every believer knows it. If you're genuinely a believer, if you are in Christ, you know. Paul put it this way in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the question then might be settled into your mind right now. Is it possible to know the gospel if you're ashamed of it? Is it possible? Can I be ashamed of the gospel, which is unto salvation, and still be the beneficiary of it? Now, if you're asking me, are there times in which I struggle with speaking up for it? Right. I mean, I think we all can struggle with that. I'm asking a different question. I'm asking it. Can you be ashamed of that gospel and yet be a recipient of it? And I think that that Jesus makes it very clear in Mark 838 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Get this. Jesus is the gospel. It's not just some words that we say, something you put in a gospel track. Jesus is the gospel. And he says, if you're ashamed of me. In, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, if, if you're ashamed of what the gospel is, Jesus Christ, and you stumble over the gospel, that helped put it in some clarity. In this world, which is, which is perverse, how does he describe it? Adulterous and sinful. Then when he comes in the glorious and holy presence of God and the angels, then he says, I I never knew you. I will be ashamed of him. You see, his power is displayed through his mercy. And it is worth talking about. It is worth proclaiming. It is worth not being ashamed of. Before Christ showed up in our, our lives, We were just deep in the kingdom of darkness that Paul describes in Ephesians 5.8. For at one time, you were darkness. That's how deep we were. We were darkness. But now, this is how far he brought you out of it. 
Okay, you were darkness because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But he says, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There is a, there is movement that comes. There is conduct that flows out of this reality, out of our identity, right? What is this light that he speaks of? Because it says we've been brought from darkness to light. What is light? The base of that Greek word used is the idea of showing or making known one's thoughts. Huh. So, you know, as a kid, I always picture like, oh, you're walking in God's light. Oh, it's just like there's this light, you know, flowing. And and I had one kid told me he whenever he saw the light coming through the clouds, the sun rays, he thought that was God speaking. Because he had seen in Sunday school pictures when God spoke to someone. It, yeah, I see some of the Sunday school teachers here. Yeah, they've seen that, that picture of, of the, the sunbeams, right? What he's talking about is he has revealed himself to you. He has made his will known to you. He has made his heart, his mind, and what is pleasing to him known to you. And as such, you, in his mercy, have responded to that and said, oh, I love that. I love you, Lord. I I want your way, not my way. Your way is light unto my path. It is knowledge. It is understanding. Right? See, God's call into the light brings us into genuine relationship with Him. And there's no other way to describe that. When someone lets you in on their thoughts, they're in relationship with you. Right? Right? If if you sit down and talk with me and I begin to share things about my thinking and who I am and my desires and what is pleasing, I'm giving you a bit of a relation. We're, we're beginning a relationship, right? And God did that in his mercy. This is the heart of what it means to know God. Not just mere facts about God that you can affirm, but to know his thoughts and his ways and to ultimately love them as the beautiful God that He is. He's called you to intimately know Him. First John 1, 5 through 7 puts it this way. This is the message we have heard from Him. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Everywhere, everywhere, the people of God should vocally proclaim God's praiseworthiness, His virtues, His deeds, His power, His glory, His wisdom, grace, mercy, and love and holiness. But our con- it's by our conduct that we demonstrate that we are children of light and not of darkness. And it's with our mouths that we proclaim the reason for how we live. That is the essence of, of what it means to proclaim. With our conduct we demonstrate, and with our mouths we proclaim. So question, what keeps you from proclaiming the valor of God? His excellencies, his, his deeds on the battlefield, the spiritual battlefield bringing you to mercy. Well, is it because you've not experienced it? You've not Known it. You've not seen it. Friend, in his mercy, he calls to you to come. To come and know him. To be forgiven, yes. But to come into relationship with him because your sins have been paid for, they've been cleansed, and now you're made pure in the sight of God, and now you can be in relationship with the holy God. That's what he calls you. But if you're a believer today, what keeps you from proclaiming the valor of God. Many old saints have told me that the thing that drives them the most into proclaiming the goodness of God, the valor of God, the excellencies of God, is as they first understand their sinfulness, they grow in that understanding, and they grow in their understanding of God's holiness. As they understand just how beautiful and glorious He truly is. And I think that we see some of that through, through the psalmist especially David, as you see him work through the excellencies of God and how that, why he would trust in God and not in other things and why God is so good in his loving kindness, so gracious and kind. You see, 
he spent time with him. He worked through it. He journaled it, if you will. He wrote it down and thought long on it. He meditated on those things. And as he thought on them, he couldn't help himself. And you just see it burst forth from time to time. And I think one day we will burst forth when all of a sudden all this life and all its passions and all our fears and all our struggles are over. And we are together with all the saints from every tribe, tongue and nation. We'll get it. And our understanding will be full and we won't care who's watching. We won't care who hears us, sees us or what they think about us. Because with one heart, with one voice, we will sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. From every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. We're proclaiming the valor of God, the excellencies of God. And you have made them, those people who were messed up and all over the place and all over the world, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Friends, one day we will proclaim the excellencies of God, but let me tell you, because of who you are, that's why he made you a child of God, that you might proclaim the excellencies of God. Let's proclaim Christ. You don't have to have a, a system. It can be helpful. You, just, you, you do need to talk about God, though. You need to talk about the work of God, not just in general. Like, oh, yes, God created the universe. Great. That's a great start. But you need to talk about what Christ has done on the battlefield, for you, delivering you from darkness to light. Together, we will proclaim His excellencies, His valor, and His worthiness because, and this, is, this last verse is kind of like, you read it and you go, what's He getting at here? Well, He's kind of doing what He just said. As the people of God, we intimately know His glorious mercy. You see, you have something to talk about is what he's saying in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. All right. Anybody Kirk Franklin's Kirk Franklin fans in here? His choir used to be GP, God's people. All right. And and so you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In what way did God move to call his people? He moved in the Old Testament, we would call it his loving kindness. But we read it in the New Testament, his mercy. Mercy is what we call monergistic. Okay? I do nothing to deserve mercy. Synergism is two ways, right? We're working together on this. You and me, God. No. Mercy is one way. God moved in his mercy on my behalf. And that's moner. And that's how God worked. It's one way. He did this. It was undeserved. He won you by his mercy. That was his valor. How many stories are written or recorded in movies of, of someone whose love is unreciprocated? And yet, through the movie, they're trying to win this other one through their kindness and, and all their deeds. And in the end, it all turns out okay. They end up happily ever after. You see, God, in his mercy, was going to win. When God pursues, God gets. And by God's grace and in his mercy, he is pursued and he has won time and time again. And if you're a, a, a believer in Christ today, you have been won and you have something to talk about. And that's what Paul is saying. You weren't a people at all. But now you're God's people. You had not received mercy at all, but now you are his people. In doing this, Peter is actually pointing back to a picture of, of such a love in Hosea. Now, young people, if you have not read this book, I highly advise you do. Because it is a shocking book, right? But encourage you to go read it because it is such a beautiful picture of God's pursuit of his people. And in this book... The Lord addresses the prophet Hosea when his unfaithful wife, Gomer, is giving birth to her second son. And he says in Hosea 1.9, the Lord said, call his name, not my people. Of course, it was in Hebrew. 
For you are not my people, and I am not your God. The second part of 1 Peter uh, 2.10 is also an allusion to Hosea's prophecy. Gomer gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord tells Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, no mercy, or not loved. What a name for a girl. You know, the Radcliffe's just had their little Ellen K, and, uh, and they had Lo-Ruhamah, ru- no mercy, or not loved. That's a tough one to live with, Right? For I will no longer show love or mercy, that is that loving kindness, to the house of Israel. Together with the Exodus 19 we talked about earlier, these texts declare God's purpose and desire to create for himself a people. The use of Hosea 2.23 reminds us that God's plans will not be thwarted. He can't be stopped. Hosea 2.23 says, And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy. On no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, who? Who will say? The one who is not my people. He will say, you are my God. God's mercy and love triumphs over human sinfulness and human unfaithfulness. Through those who have faith in Christ, God is creating for himself not merely a collection of people. Right? He's not just collecting individuals. He's building a holy nation. He's, he's making a kingdom. And he has established a priesthood that then can go be kingdom proclaimers. United people to be priests ministering his grace in a lost world. Titus 3, 4 and 5 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness, there it is, that mercy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, our identity is rooted in the depths of his mercy. Because I was in the depths, I was lost in the depths of my sin. I had nowhere else to turn. And in the depths of his mercy, he plucked me out and he has saved me. And we are now together, his mercy receiving people. As mercy receivers, we are sent out as mercy givers. He is the glorious mercy giver. And what are the people of that bloodline to do but be mercy givers? What should priests of the mercy giver do? They should be people that proclaim the excellencies of the mercy giver. What will God's beloved mercy receivers do? Like the psalmist in Psalm 86, we declare it. Verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Parents, that's a great place to start with your kids. I know we all want to raise the perfect child. And we want to demand certain standards. And we want all these things. Start with mercy. Start with grace. Slow to anger and abound in steadfast love with your coworkers. I know you want to be the best, but start with mercy. Start with grace. Be slow to anger and abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. Whether you're a boss or a coworker, spouses, be slow to be be quick to to mercy and grace and slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. May we represent him well as his people, as his priest, to proclaim the excellencies and and say, why do you do this? Oh, let me tell you why I do this. Man, what I feel inside, what I identify the most with is my anger right now. But let me tell you what overcomes that identity is an identity with the King of Kings who redeemed me from darkness to light. In his mercy, in his kindness, it overwhelms me to the point where I, you know what, I need to put off my anger. I need to put off my ungracious spirit. I need to put off impure actions and thinking because, man, that's, he's called me to his marvelous light. Friends, delight in his mercy. Drink deeply 
of his mercy. Be intimately acquainted with the depths of his mercy and understand it until you are overwhelmed by the power of his mercy. Moved by the love shown through his mercy and compelled by his mercy to proclaim his glorious valor as one who has been lovingly conquered by his mercy. Friends, his excellencies are worth speaking about. And they are worth speaking about because we know them firsthand if you're a child of God. Let that overwhelm you. Let that, for this moment and moving forward, as you think on your sin, which we so easily can think on, but quickly move to God, look what you did in overwhelming that. And he doesn't just want to do it in a past sense. He wants to do that right now. With that thought and that action and that retaliation and whatever it is that you're struggling with, he wants to, in this very moment, win that battle. To apply that mercy right now. To overcome and move forward that you might say, look, God did that too. I was ticked off. I wanted it. But man, God in his mercy moved me to remember his mercy, his grace. I wanted to give her a piece of my mind. Ah, But then I remembered God's thoughts. And I remembered his thinking of mercy towards me. And I thought, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's right. Let me give, him, give her a piece of your mind, of your heart, Lord, rather than mine. That people will see your excellencies and not mine. And may he get the glory through his people, his nation, his priest, his bloodline. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are your mercy recipients. Let us never, ever, ever forget that. Let us remember it in the moments when we struggle most with that old identity, with our old temptations, with our temptations to, to immorality, with our temptations to unkindness, to temptations to gossip, our temptations to march to our own drum, to disobey the word of God, to be unkind, ungrateful, proud, May you humble us with mercy. And may that show up in the daily stuff of life. And Lord, we know there will be times when we don't. And in those moments, may your mercy remind us that your grace is enough. That your mercy has power over even that sin. And may you be glorified in such a beautiful way as that sweeps back and forth back and forth through our lives. May your mercy lead us on and may you be enough for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.